Welcome everyone to the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, Executive Director of the International Outreach and Discipleship Ministry, Church Partnership Evangelism. I'm also the Bible teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. I invite you to go to cpeonline.org, cpeonline.org, to learn more about our work in over 40 different countries. To learn about our ministry in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Today, I share with you a meditation recorded in my study on a passage most pastors avoid at Christmas time, though it's a part of the Christmas story. Remember that the sorrows of life know no time in which they cannot insert themselves. We have happy memories in this season, but we also have painful ones too. And those painful events surrounded the story of Christ's coming, and so teach us the meaning of that coming of the Son of God to our dark world. The title of our meditation is The Dark Turn at Christmas, taken from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Then he arose and took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it may be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts, from the age of two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. We like to tell the story of the wise men that came to bring their gifts to the infant Jesus. It's a lovely picture to see these men coming from afar to bow and worship him who was born the king of the Jews and those gifts they brought. How rare and precious. And if we took the time to consider them, we would see that each gift is symbolic of some facet of Jesus Christ's life and ministry. But those gifts were also exceedingly practical. Joseph would need them, or the exchange of them for the money, money that would provide for his family once he had fled to Egypt and hid with them there for three years. Herod has decided that the Magi have fooled him, seen through his feigned interest in worshiping the baby Jesus and feigned their own willingness to take Herod to that child. He was wrong. They weren't fakes like him. God had warned them of his plot. But now Herod moves as fast as possible to kill the infant king. Uh, This account is consistent with Herod. On one occasion, he had over 300 of his own court officers slaughtered. He murdered his wife her mother, and three of his own sons. A number of his slaughters are recorded in history outside the accounts of the gospel, but not this one. It may be that in a small place like Bethlehem, the death of 10 or 20 infants was not noteworthy or irregular, but God notes it. Three things that we should learn from our passage. The first is this. Herod demonstrates the real attitude of the sinful heart to Jesus Christ. Herod would slay anyone who threatened to replace him on his throne. And this actually is the human instinct. Now, this poses a problem because Jesus cannot remain in our lives and not be ruler over them. And those who refuse him lordship will eventually find their hearts saying, deep inside of them, 
kill him off. A person will do this either by denying him altogether or by creating a false Christ made after his or her own likeness and conformed to their own stipulated parameters. They may give this false Messiah all the titles found in the Word of God, but they will determine what those titles mean for them and how far he may encroach into their lives. Though they call him Jesus and give him titles of honor, it's not the real Jesus. It's their own Antichrist an idol of a certain likeness they have constructed in an attempt to do away with Jesus. Do you see this? It's not the innkeeper who is the primary expression of her attitude towards Christ at Christmas. No room in the inn, a crowded out Christ. Our problem is not just that we don't have time for Jesus or that we let other things crowd him out of our lives. That is not the primary threat the unredeemed heart or the heart set on self-rule presents towards the Lord Jesus. No, such a heart is opposed to him, and the claims that Jesus' love and righteousness make upon that heart, it isn't just a matter of crowding Christ out. Snuffing him out is more like it. It's more of what the heart that is set on self-rule does. People will crowd to Jesus until his authority begins to make commands upon them, and then, at first, they will just shrink back from him, but shrinking away from him will not be enough. Eventually, unchecked in the commitment to self-rule, our hearts will not just shrink back from Christ, they'll strike out at him. Before Jesus was sent to the cross, you'll recall that Pilate asked the Jews, gathered at the place of judgment, what shall I do with this one named Jesus? And they cried out, crucify him. They were not the first with that cry. Herod was when he sent his assassins to Bethlehem. And they were not the last with this cry either. Every heart, when unbowed to Christ, ultimately cries the oath still today. The second thing we can see in this horrific story here is that Christ identifies with the sorrow and darkness of our world. The Christmas season is lights and gifts and peace and joy, and it's all good and it's all right, but it stands as a signal and a relief for a moment in an age where sin and rebellion bring regular courses of mourning and misery and alienation and fractured lives. Little babies are killed by Herod. You may take all the other accounts of the Gospels. You may take all of the different expressions that foreshadow the cross. Jesus being born in a lambing place, the Lamb of God who would go to the cross to take away the sins of the world. We say those things, we see those things, but again, the reality of the horror of the cross does not settle in upon us as we consider the Christmas story. But who can avert their eyes from the slaughter of little children? We have to look at it. We have to face it. Jesus comes in the midst of sorrow and darkness. Matthew relates this activity to an event spoken of in Jeremiah 31.15. The people of Israel, because of the rebellion against God, are turned over to the foreign power of Assyria. The Assyrians take the Israelites and march them out of the promised land and reassign them to a place far away from the place of promise and blessing. And this happens as a judgment from God for their sins. Sin has caused the nation's banishment from the land. And as they're marched out of the land... Jeremiah says that it's like Rachel, who is a picture of Mother Israel, can be heard weeping bitterly over them and not being comforted. And here in our story, a foreign king named Herod 
is still exercising expressions of judgment on Israel some 400 years later because of their sins, and Rachel is still weeping. Jesus came into a world that was already under the judgment for sin. He came to bear our punishment on the cross, but he also came to live in the scorched earth of sin's judgment alongside of us. He knows the darkness and confusion and agonies of sin. And from the start, even as a baby, he was enmeshed in our sorrows. But he came here to bring us out of the banishment of sin and lead us back into a land of hope and peace. More about that in a moment. The third thing we might see here, see that the murderous heart of Herod and the misery of Rachel and the expressions of sin and judgment that Christ entered into was all known by God ahead of time. None of this catches him by surprise. Listen to these words again. The Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. I don't know exactly how God manages the world and orchestrates his perfect will in a land of fallen and willful people, but nothing, nothing escapes him or slips by his direction. Jesus didn't come into a world that caught him by surprise. Isaiah 53, 11 reads like this, With full knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Jesus wasn't caught by surprise by the condition of our lives when he came into our world and entered into the depth of our sin. It surprises us. It confounds us. It overwhelms us, but not him. And in those moments, we have to fall back on him and simply say, Lord, you know. You have searched out not only the heights of heaven, but the depths of hell. And we will rest in you. Only show us the next step to take, but let that next step lead us into yourself. Yourself with us. Fourth and last thing that we'll add here is that this one, Jesus Christ, has come to lead us out into his peace. The word in Hebrew is shalom. It means life. It is life as God intended it to be. Life in all of its order as it was set forward in the garden that peace has been destroyed by sin and we now live in a world and with lives that are fractured. But Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has come back to lead us into the order of his peace. And we'll not find his peace apart from him or in opposition to his will, but his peace is there to be realized. Christ has come to reintroduce fallen people like you and I into life as it was intended to be from the hand of God, into God's shalom, into God's peace. There has to be another reason why Matthew connects Christ's life at its infancy to Jeremiah's prophecy and Rachel's weeping over the judgments of sin on God's people. The quote is from Jeremiah 31 verse 15. Uh, let me read it to you. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah takes a stunning turn in the very next verse 
And so begins a break in a book that pronounces God's judgments over and over and over again on the people of Israel. Judgments that are pronounced all the way up to Jeremiah 31, 15, and judgments that will continue to be pronounced only three chapters after this last half of Jeremiah chapter 31. But here in the middle of this long book and in the middle of this long chapter 31, on the judgments that God has called Jeremiah to proclaim over the people of Israel, here Jeremiah begins in the very next verse to proclaim promises of redemption, of a new heart, of a new covenant, of a new life that will come to all of us through God's Savior, God's Messiah for us. Let me read to you now Jeremiah 31, verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. Matthew is acknowledging the horror and the pains of sin and its judgment upon us all. He is letting us know that this infant Jesus, God's Son, has come into all of this, knowing all about it. And yet our hearts are so resistant to Him, but only He can lead us into peace, into God's shalom. And this is God's promise to us on this day. In times of chaos and sorrow, we must accept that God's statements are declarations of what will prevail in the end and set our hopes and minds upon those promises. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. God's heart is one of love, a love that one day will take those who turn to Him out of all sorrow and into all comfort and joy. Until then, we walk with Christ in the veil of tears. This has been the Bread of Life. To learn more, go to breadoflifeboise.org. And for now, God bless you.